for you Nobody knows but my pillow and me Troubles I have gone through One consolation when I go to bed I can tell my secrets where I lay my head Nobody knows but my pillow and me How much I'm longing for you with Professor Sullivan, and uh, we're going to talk Hello. about Shilamath Firestone's Dialectic of Sex. Uh, it was published in 1970. This text is, um, I think, just a really fun and um, evocative document of <clears throat> like 1960s second wave feminism. Um, I feel like if you read this book for long enough, it you you can kind of get a feeling of what it was like. It's very like the book's real raw. It's mm-hmm. not. It's pretty half baked in places. I think um, it's kind of a it's it's as much a manif. It's not a manifesto. Like it is the document of a woman who is like fired up and really trying to work some things out in the midst of a collection of people all trying to work stuff out together. Like, it is it is a young woman. She's 25 when she writes this. Probably 24, 25, right? So she's, like, really mm-hmm. young when she writes this, and it's, like, has all of the markers of a young person thinking through some things. Cool. Um, it's, a, it's a weird document. So Firestone was... One of the originate, she was a really big organizer of um, women's groups in New York City from like 1968 through the through the 70s. Um, she was a painter in Chicago. She studied painting and lived in Chicago for a while, and then moved to New York after the Democratic National Convention in Chicago. 
1968, where she and Joe Freeman, now a political scientist, um, she and Joe Freeman were booed off the stage by men at the right. um, at a like a counter convention. Not just booed off the stage, but sort of threatened with sexual violence, and they're booing off the stage. Um, in 1968, at like a Students for a Democratic Society mm-hmm. uh, counter convention, and from there she she decamped to New York, where she started organizing lots of feminist reading groups, feminist circles. She was, by uh, most accounts, um, she was like everywhere in in New York in feminist circles. Like she was mm-hmm. at all of them, all the parties, uh-huh. every everything. Um, she the, had a real tragic death. Um, 2013, I believe she died, and she died penniless and basically homeless in New York. Yeah, I remember reading um, that New Yorker article. She had been in and out of institutionalization um, for schizophrenia, or what they called schizophrenia, who knows, right? Yeah. Um, th- starting, I think, in the 80s. Uh-huh. Um, she was estranged from her family. Um, anyway... A tragic story. She's gotten a lot more um, attention since her death. Her death brought her renewed attention. Mm-hmm. Um, I think this dialectic of sex is a really f- fun book. I mean, it's it's wild. Um, it's Marxist Freudian feminism. Mm-hmm. So there you go. That's enough context to to get. You've never read this, right? I don't think so. No, I've, I've taught it a couple times, but. I don't think you've ever We've read it. We talked about it, and like I said, I read that article about her that I think the New Yorker did me when she died. Almost, yeah, that sounds about right. That sounds about right. There was a lot of, uh, there were a lot of those kind of retrospectives. All right, should I jump in? Just jump right in. So they only read two chapters. They read the sort of intro chapter and um, a chapter on love. Okay. All right, page eight. The immediate assumption of the layman that the unequal division of the sexes is natural may be well-founded. We need not immediately look beyond this. Unlike economic class, sex sex class spring directly from a a biological reality. Men and women were created different and not equal. The biological family is is an inherently unequal power distribution. Okay, so she's gonna set up some like difference. I don't know what to say about this one. I mean, she's just saying like, yeah, we're different. We don't have to run away from that. Mm-hmm. And then the biological family is just inherently unequal in its power distribution, which mm-hmm. I guess I suppose, I mean, I'm not sure where she's going with this, but I mean, then your attack may have to be on the family. <laughs> yeah, you know? so one of, the, one of the interesting conceptual things that she's doing is in her conception of what she calls sex class right. versus economic class. And so she's really developing and extending a kind of Marxist analysis okay, and saying, yeah, 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 sure, Karl Marx, you focused on the mode of production, but what about the mode of reproduction? Okay, fun. Right? I like that. And that there is, in addition to economic class, there's also sex class. Okay. 
and that sex class is the way that the mode of reproduction has been organized is around the biological family. And maybe that is a site of oppression in the same way that the mode of production Factories. organizing around capitalism is a site of oppression for the workers. Does this make sense? Yeah, totally. So it, one of the things that's interesting about that is, it's very interesting what she says there about biology and sex differences and stuff like that, given where she goes, as you'll see in a minute. But the, so that's interesting and kind of fun, and we'll talk about that. But I also want to sort of flag that she's really thinking of herself as, as someone in, like, she's conceptualizing her, her work in highly ideological terms and in dialogue with... With Marxism. Yeah. yeah. yeah she's, she's conceptualizing this as political theory. Right. Okay. It's not just like... A diary. I mean, right, right, and it's not also. It's also not like it's in dialogue with a more radical tradition. Okay, it's not like it's not just Hannah Mather Crocker, you know, right. okay. um, who is in, you know in dialogue with Christian thought and in dialogue with Republican thought, kind of, but is like much smaller. Right, she's consciously not trying to rattle. You right, know, right, any right, ruffle, right, excuse right, me, right, ruffle right. any feathers, but like Firestone's just like right, going all in. Right, she's not you know, like bionic wombs and stuff? No, well, keep going. We don't get them here, but, but we get, we get a, a little taste. Page 10. But to grant that the sexual imbalance of power is biologically based is not to lose our case. We are no longer just animals, and the king of nature does not reign absolute. Humanity has begun to transcend nature. We can no longer justify the maintenance of a discriminatory sex class system on grounds of its origins in nature. Okay. You like that? I mean, I think it's fine, I guess. It's like, I, I think I agree with... I mean, what do I want to say? Like, it's cl obviously there are biological differences between... Mm -hmm. Men and women. Mm -hmm. We could, like, there are just a variety of empirical things. I mean, whatever. I've got the read, read some puberty books with my mm -hmm. kid. Like, right? I mean, we could, like, outline mm -hmm. these differences. Um, but I think it's, like, then going to this point that, I mean, now the modern puberty books also actually talk about is that the gender is now a construct. Like, we're not actually animals. Like, mm -hmm. animals that are simply, like, we are animals, but yes. But, like, what mm -hmm. does she say? Humanity has begun to transcend nature. This right? is, and this becomes a really important point for her. This humanity is beginning to transcend nature, right? right? This is the bionic womb. Okay. Exactly, right? I mean, but, but. Yeah, but I mean, I think that this is, like, however you want to think about that, whether it's eventually going to be some kind of weird techno utopian you mm -hmm. know whatever is just like also like we can't just analyze this as though it's like a i don't know i mean i don't really know what we know about all the other animals either but like you know we're not just talking about like chickens and roosters or something you know <laughs> like that this is like a a different situation now that we're talking about and so to sort of suggest that somehow this is like that we're just like the chickens is like ludicrous because 
in a million right. other ways. We are not just like chickens, and so why we would be just like chickens in this one regard is, you know. And I think that the one of the points there is that, you know, we, in transcending nature, can exercise a little of that good old human free will. Right, yeah. <laughs> and, like, we're capable of change, right? Right. Or we're capable of adding... Uh, we're capable of creating meaning out of these differences. Right. And because we are creating meaning out of di these differences, we could choose which meanings to create. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right, page 11. And just as the end goal of socialist revolution was not only the elimination of the economic class privilege, but of the economic class distinction itself, so the end goal of feminist revolution must be, unlike that of the first feminist movement, not just the elimination of male privilege, but of the sex distinction itself. Genital difference between human beings would no longer matter culturally. Mm-hmm. Okay. Sure, man. Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, I think this is, like, also, again, clearly just very much also inter doing an interpretation of Marx, which, I mean, mm -hmm. um, I guess if we think about that, right, you know, that this sort of in the end, in the Marxist utopia, right, that we don't have the different classes. The classless society. This classless society. So, I mean, here she's doing, she's just making a parallel that, like, now we're going to have a sexless society. Not sexless in that way, but, like. Mm -hmm. Genderless. Yeah. Yeah or, yeah. or whatever. Yeah. Which I just think is sort of interesting that she goes, she wants to acknowledge all of these bodily differences and physical, right. biological differences, but it's kind of like, so what? Yeah. Right? I mean, yeah, like yeah of course. Cares? Yeah, sure. General differences, fine. Doesn't matter. Mm hmm. I mean, I think it's, it's also, you know, one of the things that I teach in my comparative politics class are some of these things about ethnicity, mm -hmm. which I think kind of like sex, we tend to think of as these like immutable mm -hmm. kind of characteristics. And when we list the things out in one of these articles that I teach, which I actually love because I actually think it's like very sweet in certain ways of like, there's all these things in there that are actually it's so easy to see that they are cultural, right? Mm -hmm. Where it's like, these people make a mound to plant their ground nuts, and these people do not make a mound. You mm -hmm. know, these people use short hose, and these people use long hose, right? But it's like, these things we treat in many cases as these like immutable facts, ethnicity is an immutable fact. Mm -hmm. it, and then it's like, I mean, I'm not sure why the, whether you have a long or a short hose necessarily has to be any different than certain kinds of bodily features. And especially if we think about that certain bodily differences that we have have no cultural meaning, right? Mm -hmm. Like, nobody thinks about them. Like, I mean, mm -hmm. yeah. So anyway, I, I guess that, like, it seems I can understand how, mm -hmm. A, I mean, it makes sense with this, like, she's matching it to this sort of Marxist analysis. And then, B, I think if it seems radical even, I mean, I'm not sure the students now have come so, well, students age cohort, right. right? Like where they are compared to where 
we were. Firestone was in 1970. Well, and where I was in college in, in the 1990s, you know, mm-hmm. like this is just like I, I don't know if this seems as radical to your students. I mean, that, I guess that's interesting. I, I'd be curious a little. I'm bit curious about, too about I, that. I'm guessing no on this, but I think that the next chapter. Maybe some more, yes. I think it might be still more. I'm not sure. I'm very curious about it. But in any case, I mean, I don't know whether or not people see this as how radical this idea seems. I would be curious about that. But then I do think, like, when I think about some of the other things that, yeah, I guess I can see it as so the other radical, but then also... The other thing that I sort of want to flag here is that Firestone is in some ways sharing certain features of of Du Bois's analysis insofar as she's adopting a kind of similar view that the biological family sort of there are biological differences they exist but they have been organized into an economically and politically right. functional right, unit right. that has chosen to make certain meaning out of these differences right. that we could choose otherwise, otherwise like right. whose meanings could be made different. Right. And in that way, shares a lot with Du Bois, right. yeah. who also, also trying to use Marx and Freud himself. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Influenced by similar thinkers. Exactly. Exactly. So I wanted. And I just also wa- looking at this similar, similarly, like, uh, what did I say? Like things that are supposedly immutable. Right. I mean, I was Race, like, that's where sex. I went. I just went yep. to ethnicity, which yep. is like, you know, it's like that. These categories are ones that we often tend to sort of like reify and. Yeah. You know, make in this box. So I just sort of wanted to to flag that and also just make sure everyone is clear that where she starts about, sure, there's biological differences in nature and where she ends up, she kind of goes a little, she's she's not like a big difference feminist if you're trying to, if you're trying to like categorize her in terms of second wave feminism or in terms of all these, like, she's blowing it up. She's blowing it up. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. That's clear. All right, so the reproduction, also on page 11, the reproduction of the species by one sex for the benefit of both would be replaced, oh, this is is the artificial wombs, right? Well, she's not talking about the artificial wombs, (laughs) that's in the last chapter. All right, the reproduction of the species by one sex for the benefit of both would be replaced by at least the option of artificial reproduction. Children would be born to both sexes equally or independently of either. However one chooses to look at it, the dependence of the child on the mother and vice versa would give way to a greatly shortened dependence on a small group of others in general and any remaining inferiority to adults in physical strength would be compensated for culturally. Wait, what's that last one? All right, so I get the first part. So the first part is like, Anybody can have babies, right? Like Right. So this is her, this is the, this chapter is like her introduction and she's laying out a lot of her different themes here. Right. One of her themes is about it's called uh, down with childhood, I think. Okay. And she's really into the idea of like not having children strictly attached to their like biological family. Uh-huh. Because she's not someone who really thinks that the biological no, family she clearly thinks it sucks. Well, she thinks it's definitely a side of oppression. Inherently unequal power distribution. Inherently unequal power distribution. And she thinks, like, well, why is there some kind of, like, special bond between, like, 
sure, there is this, like, we've created some kind of, like, special bond between biological parents and their children, but, like, that has also loaded with cultural meaning. Like, and if we're going to get sure. rid of sexual differences, culturally meaningful, like, might as well blow, might as well up, blow up the family and parenthood. <laughs> and, like, maybe, as we all recognize, like, maybe children belong to a larger community than just their biological parents. It takes a village. It takes a village, right? And And she gets into this thing. It gets a little bit... It gets a little wild because she's kind of like, by age 12, like, basically, kids should probably be independent. Right, right. Yeah. That's in the chapter four, I think it is. Yeah. Fun chap. I mean, all these chapters now, are, are real she fun. she also, she's a, what year is there Foucault? Mm. Is she a contemporary? He's earlier? He coexists with her. He is a little later. He's writing, like, he become, he comes to prominence in the early 70s. Okay. A couple years after this, she would not have been reading Foucault. He would not have been in the mix in the American intellectual world. If he were anywhere, it would be in New York, um, where she is. So, I mean, it's, it's possible that some of like people that she was at these like they turtleneck readings they... with would. Uh, yeah. well, but no. Curious. Sorry, I'm yawning. It's not because this isn't interesting. I'm I'm into the material. It's just late. Um. All right. Page 12. Was there anything else we wanted to say about that? No. I don't think so. I don't think so. I, we're just kind of getting a sense. This this chapter is like flavor. Okay. Like who's, oh, who's yeah, Firestone? The, the love chapter has a lot more, yeah, gotcha. f I think, stuff to, to chew on. Okay. So page 12. Marx was on to something more profound than he knew when he observed that the family contained within itself in embryo all the antagonisms that later develop on a wide scale within society and the state. For unless revolution uproots the basic social organization, the biological family, the vinculum through which the psychology for of power can always be smuggled, the tapeworm of exploitation <laughs> will never be annihilated. <laughs> That's a very funny metaphor. Okay, wait. So let me see if I... All right, so Marx... Okay, so this is, again, like, I mean, she's just reading... I mean, mm -hmm. this just is so much in dialogue with Marx, this mm -hmm. whole section, other mm -hmm. than the part, the whole even book. the part about the, the whole family, book. I guess. But right, that, I mean, so I don't remember this about Marx, but I'm sure she's, at this point, a much clearer reader of him than me, that the family is, like, where a lot of these things are, come out of. Um, they develop on wide scale within society and the state, right? There's probably many people that say something like that. Whether Hannah Mather Crocker, bad, way back right? when, yeah. Hannah Mather Crocker was like, basically the family's the linchpin yeah. of society. Everyone knows that the family's the linchpin of society. Yeah. Firestone says... Yeah, she says it too. Yeah, sure. And, so, and let's blow it up. Let's blow it up. For unless revolution uproots the basic social organization then the tapeworm of exploitation will never be annihilated. Yeah, so she looks back at a thinker like Hannah Mather Crocker, who's like, let's strengthen our families. Let's make sure like our women are, are respected in their families, right. right? Firestone looks back at that kind of feminism and is like, yeah, um, yeah. That's, that's not going to get rid of this tapeworm. Right, right. Right, and I mean, yeah, I mean, it, I think that 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 makes sense in this. I mean, if your analysis is rooted in the fact that the biological family is an inherently unequal power distribution, mm -hmm. 
then I mean, I feel like there is. I mean, though it's weird here that she says the biological family because, in some sense, the. It's curious to know what that means, given that, like. I mean, here. Like, the fact that we have the family that she's surely thinking of is actually still not a biological family, but a cultural family. What do you mean? Well, like, I mean, when she's, she's saying that the biological like family mom, is a side. Dad. She's like imagining a mom, a dad, and kids, right? Yeah, she's imagining her family. Right. From whom she was estranged. Right, yes, yes. Who, who all, disapproved as, of her. As, as we all are imagining our families. No, but I mean, in some sense, if we're really going to the biological family, I mean, there's no reason that the dad is necessarily even in the mix. Mm -hmm. Right? I mean, that itself is like already a cultural construct that, you know, that, that nuclear family kind of situation. Yeah, I think that what she means is like the idea that we are attached at all to our biological parents. Right is what we need to start uprooting. Right. Is our attachment to our biological parents. So funny. I hate the parents. Well, she's also, she's a big reader of Freud, too. Right, right. She's using Freud. Yes. She'll use Freud throughout the text, including in this chapter, but especially in the chapter on love, too. Um, and so the conflict between... It's all the mom's fault. And the dad. Dad, too. Yeah. Usually it's all the mom's fault, too. Well, Firestone, Firestone's a feminist reader of Freud. Okay. Because some of it can be dad's fault. All right. So Most now of it's men's fault. Um, Good. You know, for Firestone. Good. All right. Most of it, most of it, yeah. Most of, most of what she sees as some of the major problems of patriarchy are just sort of male psychodrama. That's awesome. <laughs> I love that. All right, page 113. So now we're in the... We're now in, in the, the chapter love. on love. Yeah. Okay. Which she says, like, she prefaces this chapter, which I think is a, a, a fun sort of... She doesn't preface it, but the first sentence is, like, any political manifesto, any feminist, any feminist work of analysis that doesn't take up love is defective. <laughs> like, that you, you have to talk... Like, you have to treat love as a political construction, and you have to see that because, well, because it... It forms in our world. It it is thought to form the basis of that oppressive unit of the family. Sure. Right. Sure. So if you think that family is a political unit, right? Yeah. Then Firestone is saying, well, you have to consider love. The concepts that are relevant to that unit. Exactly. Okay, I think so that nothing means... is. So she's like just she's just a like I I have all this stuff in here to kind of emphasize what a radical Firestone is, right? That like that not only is she's radical in the sense that she's like, yes, yes, we know this is a building block of society, which is why we're going to blow it up and rebuild a new society. Right. Right. And yes, yes. Uh, you know, everyone thinks love is like some sacred apple, like, right. But like, it's not, it's part of this whole mix. Right. Right. So she's kind of, uh, yeah, this is all just, I think to demonstrate her kind of radicalism. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. It made me think about that podcast you were talking about though. With the little kid. Yeah, yeah. I we'll, maybe we'll talk about that one. It'll get real meta here. Podcast All right. talking about a podcast. <laughs> Page one thirteen. 
A book on radical feminism. Oh, here we go. I think yeah, good. This is your quote. A book on radical feminism that did not deal with love would be a political failure. Oh, failure, not defective, yeah. For love, perhaps even more than childbearing, is the pivot of women's oppression today. Mm-hmm. Huh, okay. All right, I guess I'm going to keep going because I imagine she's going to explain more about this. Mm, sure, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, she's 25, 24 when she's, you know. And has not had a child. Has not had a child. All right. 115. Love is the height of selfishness. The self attempts to enrich itself through the absorption of another being. Love is being physically wide open to another. It is a situation of total emotional vulnerability. Therefore, it must not only oh, therefore it must be not only the incorporation of the other, but an exchange of selves. Anything short of a mutual exchange will hurt one or the other party. Okay. I'm sort of smirking when you read that. Um well yeah, I guess that, like, the idea that, I mean, whether the love is the height of selfishness or not, but this idea that the self attempts to enrich itself through the absorption of another being mm-hmm. is a a pretty, it does sound like a bad version of love. Mm-hmm. I would just, I guess, say it that way, right? Mm-hmm. Like, um, yeah, I'm not sure... I agree that mm-hmm. that's, I, I certainly think that I understand the version of love she is talking mm-hmm. about. Like, I feel familiar in some sense with that, that mm-hmm. version, though I'm not sure that is, like, you know, sort of love with a, as a whole mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. kit and caboodle, I guess. Um, I mean, I suppose total emotional vulnerability think that seems fair maybe not all the time but mm-hmm. certainly in some moments i mean so i include i included this passage i think that the one of the things that i liked about this is that you you get the sense here that i mean she really is talking about love you know what i mean like she's not like she's not going to be like Love is really political because right. yeah, yeah, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, but no, she's like that feeling that you're having right. is part of right. this like large system of oppression. Right. She's going to treat it as an emotion. Right. Where and she not... gets to the politics is this part, which is that anything short of a mutual exchange will hurt one or the other party. Mm-hmm. And which also does seem correct. Well, I'm not sure that I would agree. If I was going to describe love, I wouldn't necessarily call it the absorption of another being. But, like, you know, this sort of sense that, like, I mean, I don't know. I guess even that anything short of a mutual exchange will hurt one or the other party. I guess I don't know if I agree with that either. Exactly. It's very transactional and kind of like, seems like quite individualistic, even though she's a Marxist. Like, I don't know. Mm -hmm. Well, anyway, let's keep going. 
Page 116. Dissatisfaction with oneself. Who ever heard of falling in love the week one is leaving for Europe? Keep going. Keep going. Just read, read the whole thing. Like I said, this gets you like, this book's real raw, okay? Like it's pretty half-baked and she's kind of having her yeah. own, she's commenting pretty regularly on her own text with these little asides. That's hilarious. All right. Dissatisfaction with oneself. Who ever heard of falling in love the week one is leaving for Europe? Leads to astonishment at the other person's self-containment. To envy, to hostility, to possessive love, and back again through exactly the same process. This is love today. But why must it be this way? So she's saying like here that basically you come to love another person because you're dissatisfied with yourself. Yourself. Right? Yeah. And so the dissatisfaction with oneself, yeah. like you don't fall in love with someone <laughs> when like things are looking pretty great. Oh, that's what the Europe was. You're about to leave for <laughs> Europe. That's funny. What a funny... She's a funny lady. What a funny way of thinking about... Yeah, it's very funny. She's very funny. The text is very funny. It's very colloquial in some of these asides. Oh, yeah, clearly. But it's also, it just seems like... I mean, it just strikes me as wrong. But, you know... Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know. Tell me more. Well, I guess that, like, so, I feel like if we put together some of these things, right, that, like, love is being psychically wide open to another and, like, vulnerable and, like, what she said, the vulnerability mm -hmm, somewhere, mm -hmm. right? So, if we think about that and then we think about this idea of, like, okay, so she's painting this, like, going to Europe, the week one is leaving mm -hmm. for Europe as, like, oh, I'm satisfied and so, therefore, right, I, I don't need love because I'm satisfied with myself. But I actually think about it in the opposite way of, like, in some ways it's, like, the leaving for Europe I could imagine in a di very different way as, like, the kind of protection of knowing you're leaving and so then maybe opening yourself up to a vulnerability that you would feel like you had an out for, kind of, right? I don't know if I follow. I'm sorry. So, like, like okay, so if, if she's, like, set this up as, like, love is all about vulnerability. Love is all about... Love is all about wanting to possess someone who doesn't seem as dissatisfied with their life in as this you quote, are. But in the other quote, it's not. No, no. Read the read the read the other quote. Read read the beginning of the quote. Well, it's the height of selfishness. Yeah, it's the desire to possess. Yeah, the absorption of another being. Well, I guess in that framework, then. I guess this and is to fine. absorb someone else, you have to be you have to be wide open Dissat to them. But then dissatisfied with oneself. Anyway, all right, sure, fine, okay. I mean, I don't think about love at all like this, but you're not 24. I'm not, but I didn't when I was 24 either. I don't know what I thought about it when I was <laughs> 24, really. But it wasn't this? Well, you hadn't met me. <laughs> I hadn't met you. <laughs> 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 uh, I mean, I think I maybe thought it was stupid, <clears throat> but my parents are divorced, so mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> I think I thought it was a sham. But mm -hmm. I don't think I thought it was a sham in this way. I 
think I, if I had written my own manifesto back then, I might have thought it was a sham in some other in way. different ways. Still a feministy way, but you mm -hmm. know. All right, page one sixteen. I also think that I definitely would think about love differently now that I'm a mom. It's a different than when phases I and stages, man. Phases you know? and stages. All right, 116. I submit that love is essentially a much simpler phenomenon. It becomes complicated, corrupted, or obstructed by an unequal balance of power. Because sexual inequality has remained a constant, however its degree may have varied, the corruption of romantic love became characteristic of love between the sexes. Mm hmm Okay, I mean, so I'm a little confused here. Because when she says that she submits that love, I'm, I know I'm not reading it exactly all together. Right. But right, I mean, she's just said that, like, this like this is all about dissatisfaction with oneself and blah blah blah, but then when she's like love is a much simpler phenomenon phenomenon I don't know exactly simpler than what because I feel like she mm -hmm. hasn't set it up as terribly complex. Well, no, I was gonna say like yeah, I guess maybe not terribly complex and like well she was then gonna say it's like complicated and corrupted and obstructed by this unequal balance of power but it's like actually seems like it just sounds pretty shitty from the get you know what i mean like i don't yeah i think though that i mean i guess the part i guess the part where i'm i'm not totally sure what's wrong with the first aspect of that of like of a vision of love that's about admiring, like that seems to be like an admiration of someone's own sort of self-coherence, self-possession, whatever. You know what I'm saying? Like the first part of that love is selfishness. I'm not totally sure what's what's so horrifying about that. What seems so corrupted? I guess I, I'm having a hard time s separating out what she's... What she's trying to say, what love is? or I don't know what she's, what she's saying. I thought I understood what she was talking about, but here I feel like somehow she's like trying to save it, if not for the unequal balance of power. Yeah, but I don't fully understand. I'm having a hard time understanding the referent, and like I said, this still just doesn't sound good to me. Whatever you say, it doesn't sound like something that like. If this was your starting place, this wouldn't be something that I would be really trying to dig my way back to. I got you. I got you. Well, listen. So the part when she's talking about when she's talking about the what it's what it's simpler than, it's this. Um, it's like the the vision of a kind of romantic love as some kind of what she's pushing against is this vision of love of like some kind of romantic cat and mouse type game oh okay right so when she's thinking about romantic love she's thinking about a variety of of what we might term kind of romantic games of 
um, in the 1960s were often thought about like, you know, women trapping men, okay. and you've got to you've got to get your you know that yeah, kind yeah. of like retrograde yeah. um, vision. And so that's what she says like when she's thinking about love being simpler than okay. than something. What she's thinking about is like love is way simpler than the way that um, like women are socialized to think about how complicated and how difficult it is to get a man to love you or whatever. Does that make sense? Okay. Okay. All right. Sure. All right. Sexual inequalities remain constant. And then that romantic love with this game becomes characteristic of what love is. It's the cultural... Right, so... So we've so this is part of the whole excuse me this is part of the whole story that she's constructed about how we organize we've got all these natural biological differences between women and men we organize those into some kind of valuable economic unit of the biological family and we construct all kinds of other cultural meanings that seem to support that one of those being romantic, romantic love romantic love okay and so we 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 have all of these meanings that we could just change. Right. Right. Okay. So jumping ahead to page 124. To participate in one's subjection by choosing one's master often gives the illusion of free choice. But in reality, a woman is never free to choose love without ulterior motives. For her at the present time, the two things, love and status, must remain inextricably intertwined. Mm Mm-hmm. I think read the next one, too. Okay. Also, so I'm 126. In fact, women are in no position to love freely. If a woman is lucky enough to find a decent guy to love love her and support her, she's doing well, and usually will be grateful enough to return his love. About the only discrimination women are able to exercise is the choice between the men who have chosen them, or a playing off of one male, one power against the other. But provoking a man's interest and snaring his commitment once he has expressed that interest is not exactly self-determination. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that seems true. I mean, presumably here the ulterior motives are still that that kind of stability of partnering economically, no? Yeah, exactly. Right. Status and, and wealth. Right, or status and economic power, right? So, right, and even maybe not even economic power, but economic, economic stability, stability, right? Sure. It, like, so women do marry for... What, what Firestone says is, like, of course women marry for status and money. Right. Like, obviously, in yeah. 1970. That love and status are... Because that's, that's what they are, right? I mean, that's what love is, love is about, status and, and money. Right. In the biological family. Right, because, I mean, this is this, if a woman is lucky enough to find, quote, a decent guy to love her and support her, she's doing well. Mm-hmm. And usually will be grateful. I mean, you know, I mean, I think about this, when I think about this time period, and I think about, like, my parents, right, who would have been... Getting, getting married about this time. To get... Or somewhere in this time. Mm-hmm period, maybe a little later than this, but not too much later. Um, 
But, you know, like, my mom didn't have a college degree, right? I mean, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know. Um, so, yeah, I mean. I mean, and I guess, yeah. Anyway, but, I mean, I think that you have a lot of um, women still at this time period that were... had less financial opportunities. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so Firestone, Firestone is, is partly saying that like, if a woman's life choices, I'm sorry, life chances are partly shaped by this romantic entanglement. It's difficult to describe this person as having much in the way of freedom. Absolutely, right. Well, then she says the only discrimination women are able to exercise is a choice between the men who have chosen them Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. or playing uh, off of one male, one power against the other. Right. Right. And then, like, where she says, but provoking a man's interest and snaring his commitment is not exactly self-determination, right? right? I mean, absolutely. The, like, the, the whole thing is, like, that you're just supposed to be able to, like, yeah. Mm-hmm. That is the cat and mouse game, right? Presumably mm-hmm. that she exactly. was talking about earlier, right? Which is, like, you're just supposed to, like, catch that guy and then, mm-hmm. like, you know. Which, yeah, it doesn't... Certainly, I, you know... Yeah, they're not able to love freely, but they're also not able to have a whole so many other choices are constrained if that's your primary arena mm-hmm. for economic stability. Mm-hmm. Yep. Should I keep going? Yeah, keep going. All right, page 129. Quote, emancipated women found out that men were far from good guys to be emulated. They found out that by imitating male sexual patterns, the roving eye, the search for the ideal, the emphasis on physical attraction, etc., they were not only not achieving liberation, they were falling into something much worse than what they had given up. They were imitating, and they had (laughs) inoculated themselves with a sickness that had not even sprung from their own psyches. (laughs) (laughs) What do we say now in the modern parlance when you're like, shit, I think I thought that when I was in my 20s. (laughs) <laughs> I, think I had this realization when I was in my 20s. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I definitely think that that is uh, some powerful wisdom there. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah. I mean, I think it's basically acknowledging that I think some of that feminism that maybe still exists now um, but certainly existed still when I was young um, was like partly about the freedom of women to act like men Mm -hmm. and not just about sexuality or Mm -hmm. whatever but like in general right that like i mean in this is like i know it's more it's like has parallels that are relatively recent because it's like the same like lean in Mm kind of sheryl sandberg bullshit which is like right like oh like go in and ask for a raise and like you know you gotta like whatever like sleep in your office like a man like what'd you say (laughs) girl boss yeah but it's like 
He's like, whatever. What if I like actually don't want this stupid fucking shit where I'm like sleeping under my desk and like mm -hmm. working an eighty hour week, working an eighty hour week and like having affairs with my secretary or whatever. Like, like maybe actually this is not a satisfying life. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, and like I've like been working so hard to achieve this like goal of being like a dude, mm -hmm. and it turns out that actually it's kind of shitty. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that that's like what this passage is totally like. And it's like that part, like well, they well, were imitating. Yeah. Right? Like, and what, what she, what she, this is, this is in this part where she's like, so basically my world, my, my thinking on, on love has led me to these three conclusions. The first of which is men are incapable of love, <laughs> <laughs> which gets into this, like, which gets into this pretty heavy-duty Freudian section where she's like, men are incapable of love because, like, of these, you know, bizarre masculine dynamics between mother and son. Right. Right. And so men can't love because they men right. they're just incapable of it because they don't their, really understand. <laughs> because what? Because of their moms. Well, because because they actually. Be, yeah, because they have this, you know, fucked up relationship with their moms. Right. Their mom didn't fuck it up. It's just like, that's just, that's just what, just, that's just men. Right. right? <laughs> is what she says. And so that's part of what gives this in the text, in the context, what gives this kind of imitation line its special power, right? Is that when these, when, when these emancipated, these quote unquote emancipated women are imitating men, they're imitating this like really fucked up. Right. This they're inoculating themselves with a sickness that had not even sprung from their own psyches. Right, but they are so. But they are still socialized as women who are who are for for whom. What did she say? That it's the pivot. Like they're still socialized. So they're still socialized as women and still kind of like looking for love. Okay. Right, because they're socialized as women. Right. Right. And yet they're looking for love by imitating people who are incapable of love. <laughs> right, 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 right. Does that make right, sense? Yes, right. Yes, so that yes, gives yes, it like even more saying, like yes. so so right. they're really dan so she gets into this but whole I thing. I feel like here that she's also saying that it's like they're doing it in a way that is like following that, right? That this is like happening because of some like psychic damage that isn't even theirs that isn't theirs yes. <laughs> so they're yes. like, exactly you know. yeah yeah exactly yeah. exactly they're what they're basically imitating is like a pathological <laughs> right. like it's experience of psychic damage and attempt at pushing it away or yeah. whatever yeah it's very funny it's a really it's got yeah. a lot it's got a lot of very um like very 1970 very new york uh moments to it uh-huh um, but she does, I think I do, it is interesting to flag that, especially given the kind of like historical contour of feminism since that time and, and to flag this particular moment where she is kind of like, well, what we might think of as emancipation mm -hmm. is maybe not so emancipatory. Right. Right. And and she goes on to say, well, like that strategy, being an emancipated woman never lands a man anyway because you're always just his mistress. <laughs> right. That's yeah. what she yeah. says. She definitely was right about <laughs> that social analysis. Uh. All right. 
Page 130. Is this your last one or you got one more? It looks like the last I one. I think it's your last one. We have seen that a woman needs love. First, for its natural enriching function. And second, for social and economic reasons which have nothing to do with love. To deny her need is to put herself in an extra vulnerable spot socially and economically, as well as to destroy her emotional equilibrium, which, unlike most men's, is basically healthy. <laughs> <laughs> this is awesome. Isn't it fun? Uh, Isn't it fun? Digs. No, digs throughout. Digs. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So we've seen the women as a first and second. I think I just wanted, I think really the, the, the end of that, the we dig is really the, dig, yeah. is really the, uh, the main, main event there. I mean, it's weird. It's so weird to me that like. What's weird? The part where, so. I mean, I get that the woman needs love for social and economic reasons. But that, I mean, she seems to have some, like, because she's like, the first part of this is that, like, women need love first for its natural uh, enriching, enriching function. Functions, which is, like I said, I mean, maybe it's just my read on her explanation of what love is, but it just doesn't, it just doesn't seem that. It still sounds more pathological than <laughs> enriching to me when I read that explanation, but I don't know. What's well, you know, people were into it? analyzing love in in the in this period, right? I mean, this is like Eric Fromm comes out with sure. the art of loving at sure, some point, sure. like maybe I can't remember when that book came out. Late forties, no. Maybe early 60s, 61. I think Art of Loving is 61. And so people were in this like world that she's in are are more comfortable with this idea of like love being this sort of like search for self-actualization. You know what right. I'm saying? Like that's what this whole like hippy yeah. dippy. No, I know, but I just feel like you know. it doesn't actually she didn't say any of that anywhere in this part that you've given well, me. I don't yeah. know if she says it somewhere else, but well, maybe this will give us something to talk about in class about yeah, I mean, if whether they, she has any positive, like... Yeah, if the students found any quotes about love that actually seemed appealing, I don't know. Because like I said, like, I didn't... None of this struck me where I was like... Yeah, this really captures our love. <laughs> well, but all, like, the love that I experience with, like, anyone that I can think of, right? So from, like... Okay, I have you, right? We were married. I have a child. I have mm -hmm. a mother, right? I mean, it's mm -hmm. like when I think about the sort of like list of people and I like think about the way in which I love those people, just like this is like not a good description mm -hmm. for me. It is not capturing, right, the way that I feel. I think it is. I mean, I think that this is one of the indicators of the particular phase and stage of life that our author finds herself. Wait, well, I don't know if the students will find it any more... Resonant or... Resonant. I, like, like, this is what I'm saying. It's like, I don't find her description particularly... We've aged out of... Maybe I've aged out. I mean, some of her things, that, yeah, sure. Like, I mean, I can... I think it's also... I mean, I guess that, like, I do remember having some sort of, like, love of the height of, the height of selfishness, but... 
I guess that some of that seems to me I might have classified as infatuation, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right, as opposed to, I don't know whether I would have thought then, I might have still thought, but I love you, <laughs> but <laughs> mm -hmm. I don't know, but. Um, well, I think this is a fun book, and. Uh, I'm sorry I didn't get to read the part about the bionic womb, though. <clears throat> yeah, that's, uh, that may be in the childhood chapter. And it certainly appears in the last chapter where she's like, some proposals. And it's like, bionic, womb. bionic wombs uh, extended to like non-family non families, right? Like extended community child re rearing. Right. Full independence and emancipation at age right. 12. <laughs> so crazy. That's so funny to think about that since we have a 10-year-old. <laughs> it's like 12, huh? Yeah, it's pretty soon. <laughs> Good luck with that. Like. So uh, I think this book's fun. I think that it can generate lively discussion. I think it's a nice piece of um, piece of of nineteen seventies feminism, and um, yeah, I think it is one of the better texts to get a like a a really a good flavor of not only the political positions that were being staked out, but the kind of intellectual world context, that it's the yeah, intellectual certainly. world that it's swimming in right that right. like 1970s yeah. feminism comes out of marx really deep reading like, yeah. of marx and freud like it's not well i mean i think about some of that stuff even for my mom and then like you know i read some of those like diaries of anias nin back when mm -hmm. i was younger and it's like i mean that was all like she was like all, having all this analysis and mm -hmm. i mean it was like that whole thing was huge i think having the kind of huge it's huge so I, partly that's another reason to to give this is that it it is it is pretty um, transparent about the intellectual context and right. about the sort of influences and, right. and it's interlocutors. Buried, it's it's not it's yeah. it's absolutely on the surface, and I think that's just gives you a nice flavor of where this particular set of ideas comes from, and it has been uh, like the. Feminist movement of the 1970s turns out has been remarkably successful, even if not necessarily in the way that Firestone imagined it, right? But right. like its ability to advance women's standing right. uh, economically, socially, culturally, uh, politically was has been pretty mm -hmm. like one of the impressive stories of the late 20th century, um, and all from you know not all but has some the roots of that tree are uh, are yeah. varied yeah. um anyway i look forward to our conversation either wednesday or friday see you soon
lose them brain I try to corrupt but only in vain Police insane, soldiers insane, commuters insane Bus drivers insane, pedestrians insane, passengers insane The system insane, the music insane, this jack insane Selector insane, all who not dance is when you're insane Who saw, he saw, who comes, he came My connection reshuffle up the game I've nothing to lose but much more to gain